I'm Matt, and this is Ghostthropology. This podcast is an exploration of ghostly folklore and its relationship to the cultures that produce it. I don't know where or when you are listening to this, but I hope that it's dark outside, as that is the best time for ghost stories. Episode 70, La Llorona. There was a beautiful widow who had two children. Although her children meant the world to her, she knew that she could not support them on her own, and so she began to search for a new husband. She spent most of her evenings in saloons, cafes, and anywhere where the men of her town would gather, searching for a husband who could help support her family. One night while she was out, bandits attacked her home and killed her children. When she returned home, she saw what had happened, and the knowledge that she might have been able to stop the murders had she been home rather than at the saloon drove her insane. She began to wander, crying, Where are my children? To this day, her ghost is still seen wandering the countryside, calling out for her lost children, and if you happen to be a child within her grasp, she will drown you, and your body may never be found. If that sounds a bit off, try this version. A widow with two children fell in love with a man who had no interest in children. After trying for a long time to get his attention, she finally decided that her children were the impediment, and she drowned them in the river. When the man discovered what she had done, he was horrified and refused to have anything to do with her. She was hung, but her ghost can still be seen wandering the riverbanks, crying for her lost children and snatching any children she comes across, intending them to join her in death. Still not quite right? How about this version? A woman married and had two children with a horrible man, a 'er ne'er-do-well and a philanderer. One evening, he came home with another woman on his arm. He told his wife that he wished to see his children, but that she meant nothing to him any longer. He had replaced her with someone younger and prettier. She had no power, didn't control the money, and since she was being pushed out, she couldn't even threaten to leave. The only way to get revenge against this man was to kill the children, which she did. After she had drowned them in the river, she realized what she had done and gave herself up to the authorities. To this day, her ghost can still be seen wandering the banks of the river, crying and searching for her lost children. Any children found by her near the river are in danger, as she will drown them too. If that doesn't suit your tastes, try this one. A long time ago, a young woman and a man met and fell deeply in love. The young man was from a wealthy, influential family, but the woman, who we will call Maria, was poor. Nonetheless, they formed a strong relationship, and he bought a home for her and for the children that they had together. But he had to keep this all a secret, as his family would never agree to consent to his marrying a woman so far below his station in life. Eventually, his parents pressured him into actually getting married, and he had to visit Maria and tell her that he was being forced to marry, but that he would continue to support her and the children, and that he would visit whenever he could. On the day of the wedding, Maria stood in the back of the church, 
dressed in black, and after the ceremony, she went home and killed her children and threw their bodies into the river, and then she killed herself. When her soul reached the gates of heaven, she was denied entry, and God asked her, Where are your children? When Maria admitted that she did not know, God informed her that, until she could bring her children to the gates of heaven, she was not to be allowed to rest. And so her spirit wanders the world looking for her children, and she will snatch any child she finds, hoping to take them with her to the afterlife. And there are many other versions. In some, the mother murders her children. In others, they die due to her neglect. And in others, she's arguably blameless in the deaths and yet blames herself anyways. In some versions, she kills herself. In others, she is executed. And in others, she dies a natural death, but is condemned to wander the earth by God for her failings as a mother. While she is most often portrayed as a threat to children, she is also sometimes portrayed as a threat to philandering men, trying to tempt them away from their wives or girlfriends, and then killing them when she succeeds. Just as her story is variable, so is her appearance. Typically, she is said to generically be a woman dressed entirely in white. Sometimes her face is said to be that of a horse. Sometimes it is simply said to be a blank space where a face should be. Sometimes she is described as looking like a waterlogged corpse, and so on. She may have normal hands, or her hands may have been transformed into claws. And there are many other variations. Some seemingly sprung from natural variations of the tale, and others likely a result of syncretism with other folklore. The things that bind these stories together are a woman who usually has little control over her circumstances, the death of her children either at her own hands or due to her negligence, and the children's bodies ending up in the river or another body of water. While La Llorona is typically said to be wandering and looking for children, that is not a feature of every La Llorona story. And, as noted, some highlight her as a threat to men. Commentary La Llorona, or The Crying Woman, is one of the classic ghost stories of Mexico and the Mexican diaspora in the United States and Canada. Although this story is a common urban legend, it has been attached to many specific locations throughout the Americas, primarily Latin America, and locations with large Hispanic populations within the U.S. and Canada. In addition to the tellings of the story, reported sightings of La Llorona are also common in these areas. Now, the research for this episode quickly showed me just how much some of my old assumptions stick with me, at times to the detriment of me actually understanding these stories. I had assumed, as I have found many people do, that La Llorona was simply something of a legend for warning of practical, real-world danger, intended to keep children away from waterways and areas prone to flash flooding. After all, if warning a child of the dangers of swift moving and changing water conditions doesn't keep them away from danger, perhaps telling them of a ghost that will grab them at the water it will keep them from engaging in risky behavior. And La Llorona is that, certainly. But La Llorona is also much more. While 
Outside of the Latino community, La Llorona's danger to children near waterways is often highlighted. Within that community, La Llorona is sometimes used as a general boogeyman and is said to come for children who are simply naughty. In addition, La Llorona, as a woman who has been spurned, is also reputed to attack and kill men who are unfaithful to their partners, tempting them to somewhere dark and out of the way in order to do them harm. This is very similar to another creature of Latin American folklore, La Siguanaba, a demonic creature that was once an unfaithful wife to a Mayan prince and a neglectful mother who now, in the form of a beautiful woman, tempts men off the straight and narrow before transforming into a horrifying creature with a horse's skull for a face and killing her victims. The origins of the La Llorona legend are unclear. There are many possible origins suggested in the folklore literature, and people tend to favor one possible origin over others, largely for social or political reasons, rather than based on the specific evidence to support a particular interpretation. One commonly cited potential origin for the story is that, in the decade before the Spanish arrived in 1519, people in the Aztec capital witnessed eight omens of change, likely heralding the end of the world, or at least the Aztec world. Among these was the sound of a woman loudly crying over the death of her children. When the Aztec king Motecosuma heard the crying woman, or possibly heard of people reporting the wailing of the woman, he consulted his priests, who informed him that the woman was the goddess Siwakotl, or Kotaliku, who was foretelling the doom of the Aztec people at the hands of outsiders. The world would end, the priests said, and a new type of people would come to populate the earth. The king asked what could be done to prevent calamity, and the priest said that the future was foretold and nothing could be done. In response, the king had the priests imprisoned and their wives and children killed, none of which helped him when the Spanish invaders arrived. This story is reported in Historia General de las Cosas de la Nueva España, also known as the Florentine Codex, written in 1578 by Fray Bernardino de Sahaguin, a Franciscan priest who was performing missionary work in Mexico at the time of the conquistadors. A brief note on the term Florentine Codex. A lot of people who favor pseudo-historical and often conspiracy theory-laced accounts of historic events will often talk about the authority of various codexes, or if they use Latin correctly, codices, suggesting that a codex is a special or secret tome of knowledge. I've even heard people refer specifically to the Florentine Codex as being special or mystical in some way, which it is not. A codex is actually just a format for physically putting a book together. For much of humanity's written history, books were kept on scrolls or on sets of clay tablets. But a codex is a bound paper book of the sort that you would buy in a bookstore today. So when you hear someone imply that information that they have is especially important or trustworthy because it came from a codex, just remember that the adventures of Curious George are also primarily documented in codices. Okay, back to the main subject. I am very skeptical of this being an accurate telling of pre-Entrada events. I don't see a problem with stories of weeping goddesses and omens, as those are common types of folklore and would have seemed perfectly at home in a number of cultures. However, I am skeptical of the way that this story is typically reported as taken from the Florentine Codex without much consideration of that source. I think there's more to it than is typically indicated. First off, 
The story of the prophecy as told sounds like a story developed after the destruction of the Empire in an attempt to mythologize and make sense of the Empire's destruction, which is historically not an uncommon way for the conquerors to write about the conquered. That doesn't mean that there wasn't an existing tradition of the weeping Sihakotl, but rather that as it is recorded, it fits a little too nicely into a triumphant Spanish historical narrative. As a point of comparison, the notion that a non-Christian world would end and be replaced with a new one shows up in medieval European writings describing the Norse Ragnarok, with the implication being that the end of the non-Christian world was a good thing as it made way for a Christian world and foretold the inevitability of Christian domination of Northern Europe. This story of an omen foretelling the end of the Aztec world seems rather similar with it making the dominance of the Spanish people and Spanish Catholicism a foregone conclusion. And as the account is written by a Spanish priest after Spain seized control of Mexico, it makes me suspect that Sahagún might have had something other than historical accuracy in mind when he recorded this tale. I am not saying that he is lying, so much as I am saying that he had a specific motivation to record the story in a particular way and to edit out anything that might not have pointed to the Spanish domination of Mexico. Also, I'm left thinking about the conversation that I had with Assyriologist Irving Finkel in episode 41, wherein he pointed out that in the Mesopotamian world, the entire point of divination was to learn how to avoid a bad fate that had been foretold. While mythology is full of people defying prophecies, but through their actions actually creating the very fates that they had hoped to avoid, in the real world, the use of divination, augury, and various forms of fortune telling has long been about people trying to find information to better inform their decisions and avoid a bad fate. As I can think of examples of similar uses of omens, divination, and augury from other cultures, it seems weird that the Aztec priests would simply accept the end of the world as fate and say that nothing could be done. So again, I have some suspicions that we are getting a highly edited story from Sahagwan. That said... It does suggest that there was existing local folklore about a weeping woman who mourned for her children in Mexico prior to the arrival of the Spanish, and it would be quite simple for this to morph over time into the tale of La Llorona. Considering that the story was written down some six or seven decades after it is said to have happened, there is plenty of time for a tradition to have developed in which the weeping woman transitioned from an omen of doom to a woman weeping over the death of the culture, and by the 19th century, if not earlier, into a woman weeping for the deaths of her specific children. In her book on La Llorona, Domino René Perez cites and dismisses a claim that points to a European white lady story with similarities to La Llorona as the origins of the story. While I agree with Perez that the existence of a 16th century document that contains what appears to be a local story that serves as a prototype for La Llorona is sufficient reason to identify at least a substantial part of the origin of the legend in the Americas, I don't think that dismissal of European folklore as a possible origin makes much sense. Folklore has a tendency to be syncretistic, that is, legends with points of similarity or compatibility from different cultures tend to blend together when those cultures meet, and the transformation of an Aztec goddess into a white lady ghost of a sort common to much of Western Europe certainly would be a near textbook example of such syncretism. 
What I do find odd is that Perez specifically dismisses possible European origins by pointing to the claim that La Llorona descends from a German ghost story. As the German folklore in question is of the typical white lady story type found throughout Europe, including in Spain, a connection to Spain would, for obvious reasons, be much more plausible than a connection to Germany. Given that there are plenty of sources that point to Spanish variations on the white lady story, this seems weirdly selective to me. The European white lady stories are something of an archetype that is seen again and again. The ghost of a woman, garbed in white, often glowing, is seen wandering a location of importance. Often she is looking out to sea and is, therefore, like La Llorona, associated with water. She is often a widow, not necessarily abandoned as La Llorona is often said to have been, but definitely without a male partner or husband. Again, there are elements here that could easily be melded into the story recounted in the Florentine Codex of a weeping goddess asking after her children to create the La Llorona story that we know today. Another source that I've seen brought into this discussion is the Banshee of Irish folklore. The idea is that immigrants from Europe brought this tale or a similar folklore from other parts of Western Europe with them when they arrived. While there are some similarities, and a few specific La Llorona stories clearly claim that the crying woman is a harbinger of death, there are also a number of differences. Just for starters, La Llorona is a ghost, while the Banshee is a fae spirit. Also, La Llorona appears in places with large Spanish-speaking populations, begging the question of why these people would be continuing an Irish story. It is nonetheless very likely that Banshee's stories did influence the development of various area-specific La Llorona stories, especially within places in the United States where there was a larger Irish population, and hence there was place for syncretism between the Banshee and La Llorona. Regardless of her specific origins, after the mention of the crying goddess in the late 16th century, the written trail of La Llorona goes cold until the publication of a sonnet in the late 19th century in which she appears as the ghost of a young woman murdered by her husband. While a number of sources cite this as the beginning of the modern legend, it seems more likely, if Perez is correct and the folklorists are to be believed, that this sonnet simply reported one version of, or a flourish added to, a more widespread oral tradition of the La Llorona legends. Keep in mind that, up until the advent of the internet, the only place where you would hear most urban legends was from other people telling them. Even in the hyper-literate 20th century, most legends did not get written down. And we should expect no different from people in the 16th through 19th centuries. Another possible origin that I came across in researching this episode is the recurrent cholera epidemics that plagued the Americas in the 19th century. According to this hypothetical origin, La Llorona already existed as the ghost of a woman who had been murdered by her husband or her lover, as told in the sonnet, but fear of the waterborne pathogens that caused cholera led to infanticide being added to the tale. While water could be treated by boiling or chemical means in the home, water outside the home could not be. Therefore, turning La Llorona from a story of a woman betrayed to a woman betrayed who committed infanticide at a creek, river, or lake was a way to dissuade children from having anything to do with bodies of water that may not be clean. This is certainly plausible and is consistent with a common interpretation that La Llorona is meant to deter children from drowning hazards, as both drowning and cholera involve bodies of water. 
But cholera is also not necessary to create La Llorona, and it seems just as likely that the story involving infanticide predates the 19th century. Another aspect worth considering is that the story of La Llorona is often combined with the story of La Malinche, a native Nahua woman named Marina, which I have to assume was a Spanish name given to her in place of her Nahua name. She is also known as Malintzin, which is simply the name Marina filtered through Nahuatl and given an honorific. So again, not what her parents named her. Marina was one of 20 enslaved women given to Hernan Cortez by the natives of Tabasco, and she served as a translator, advisor, and intermediary between the Spanish soldiers and the native people of the region. Marina did have a son with Cortez, a boy named Martin, and there are La Llorona variations that hold that she killed Martin rather than let him be taken from her and sent to Spain to be educated and brought up in the Spanish nobility. Marina did not, in fact, kill Martin. He lived to his mid-70s, but both Marina and Martin are important in Mexican culture. Martin is seen as the first mestizo, that is a person of mixed Spanish and native descent, and his mother is therefore the mother of the mestizo race, or la raza, a concept in Latin America wherein people consider themselves to be both derived from Native American and Spanish ancestry and also distinct from them. It's not tied into ideas of race as most Anglophone people think of it, but rather is about nationality and a sense of heritage. While generally being part of La Raza is considered positive and a source of pride, there is some ambiguity about it, and it is not considered as simply a positive. This mestizo-focused variation of La Llorona, as well as the distinct folklore built up around La Malinche, illustrates this. La Malinche is a culturally powerful symbol in Latin America and especially in Mexico, where she is seen as the mother of the mestizos, but also as the betrayer of her people because she helped the Spanish conquer them. That she is also a victim, as someone who was a slave and was quite literally given as a gift to Cortez, is also not lost. She is simultaneously the origin of modern identity, the betrayer of one of the roots of that identity, and a victim of both her own people, who gave her away, and of the Spanish, who took her and used her. Which aspect of her identity is predominant depends on both the politics of the time and who was using her as a symbol, but all aspects are always present. Frankly, I think that my fellow Americans who are given to black and white views of our own history and refuse to accept its complicated moral nature could learn a thing or two here. The La Malinche story is open to wild interpretation and abuse, but the facts that there are both positive and negative aspects and that someone's actions can be complex is present in the popular imagination about Malinche and proves that we don't have to sink into the binary good-bad historical thinking that many of us do. Regardless, those who combine La Malinche and La Llorona tie together Spanish colonialism and native responses. La Malinche has very little real power. She is a slave and cannot do much to stop Cortez, but she can kill his child, and in so doing take an act of revenge against Cortez, even if it damns her. It is a piece of folklore that reflects the reality of many of the Native Americans' responses to European colonization in both the North and South Americas. Many of the people who engaged in warfare and raids knew that they wouldn't win in the long run, but thought it better to inflict what harm they could on the invaders than to go without a fight. 
In this sense, mixing La Malinche with La Llorona is depressing, but it is also a reminder that sometimes it's the fight against the more powerful opponent that matters, regardless of the potential for victory. Of course, as La Malinche in these tellings is damned to wander the earth searching for her child and likely doing harm to others, this can also serve the opposite purpose, telling you that it is better to know when the fight is up and to find a way to submit gracefully rather than doom future generations to suffering. While La Llorona is often told as little more than a standard creepy ghost story, this dual nature, where she can be striking against injustice, and or dooming others and herself to eternal misery fuels a lot of her staying power. And while La Llorona is often used as a story simply to dissuade bad behavior on the part of children, to label it, as I used to, simply as a common boogeyman legend or a tool for preventing children from playing near dangerous water bodies is to miss most of the point of the story. For one thing, some of my sources indicated that the story takes on different forms depending on the audience. When told by parents to young children, the story focuses on the physical danger that La Llorona poses to kids that misbehave, often with a focus on the dangers of unpredictable waters. It's a useful tale to be told when you want to provide a vivid reason to steer clear of a dangerous location or provide an entity to fear in the event that you step out of line. This is in contrast to how the story goes when told by women to each other. As folklorist John O. West points out, this version is typically a variation in which the woman falls in love with a man of a higher social class and is often told to young women as a way of warning them against attempting to find a mate that is too high above their own station in life. This provides a narrative about the dangers of someone with more power taking advantage of a young woman, but it also helps reinforce the same social structures that allow that power difference to exist in the first place, which allows the story to serve as a tool for both the people at the top and the bottom of the social hierarchy. In most of these tellings, the infanticide is the focus. Yes, La Llorona was driven to it by the actions of a man, but ultimately, she let herself be put into a position where she could be hurt or manipulated and thereby become a menace to children. If you are a child, you should beware the danger of La Llorona, and if you are a young woman, you should avoid rakish young men who may put you into a position where you are likely to become La Llorona. But this contrasts with another La Llorona tradition, wherein the focus is on the man's actions. After all, if he hadn't abandoned the young woman or abused her or taken her as a lover knowing that his family would force him to marry someone else, etc., she would never have been in a position where killing children would seem like a reasonable action, even if only temporarily. In the stories that young women tell to each other, there is more likely to be a focus on the wrong that the suitor did to the woman who would become La Llorona than on the act of infanticide itself. Like La Malinche, La Llorona may have done something horrific, but she was also caught up in the circumstances of her time and place, and her ways of exercising agency were limited. Interestingly, the man in these stories doesn't typically seem to have a fate similar to La Llorona, but the ghost in these tellings is often less of a danger to children than to philandering men. It is these tellings that often have the ghost manifest as a beautiful young woman in white who tempts men to stray and then kills them for doing so. Although the sources I have read often indicate that these versions of the story tend to circulate among women, I find it difficult to think that they aren't also told to adolescent boys and young men as a way of keeping them on the straight and narrow and trying to put a good scare into them should they decide to be poor partners to the women that they pursue romantically. 
So La Llorona is a more complex character than she is often portrayed as being outside of the Latino community. Versions of the story that focus on infanticide and the woman bearing the punishment for all that has happened bear the marks of a patriarchal form of Catholicism that is quite active in Latin America and, in fact, it's not difficult to find Catholic male writers who specifically call out the infanticide as being the most important part of the story as a way of proving that the young woman was never worthy of salvation. But the versions that focus on the wrongdoing of the man and see La Llorona as a spirit of vengeance against those who would prey on women also bear the signs of a left-wing activist Catholicism that is also very active in Latin America. It is not difficult to find writers who use this and sometimes other versions of the La Llorona legend as a way of discussing the plight of women in oppressive regimes. La Llorona legends are a focus of social and religious tension and provide a way for people to confront these matters both indirectly by focusing on the emotional or moral themes of the legend and sometimes very directly by drawing direct parallels between aspects of the legend and real-world politics. The Library of Congress contains a manuscript by Bess Lomax Haas detailing the presence of the legend in a Los Angeles County juvenile hall in the 1960s. Haas did not collect full stories from anyone, but rather, as is typical in folklore, collected descriptions of what La Llorona does and what she looks like. It is common for people to have parts of the legend and not the full thing, and you get used to this when reading papers on the gathering of folklore. In these short descriptions, La Llorona is said to come for misbehaving children, or children who remind her of her husband. She seems to be a general boogeyman, and one of the transcripts in the paper notes that she specifically comes three days after the rain. One of the transcripts specifically says that her dead children are, quote, buried in her back, unquote. Whether this means that they are buried in the backyard of her home or gruesomely have been inserted into the flesh in her back is not clear from context. That La Llorona is discussed in Juvenile Hall is interesting. Here is a boogeyman with a reputation for targeting children stalking the halls of an institution intended to incarcerate children. La Llorona seems somewhat redundant on first glance, but looking at what the kids interviewed had to say is illuminating. One states that La Llorona comes to get the kids who were bad in juvie, suggesting that there is a worse punishment if you act out, something more to fear. Another indicates that La Llorona, quote, goes around institutions and foster homes looking for her kids, unquote, and then explains the harm done to children who remind La Llorona of her own children. This focus on institutions, which would include juvenile hall and other state-run or state-funded programs, as well as foster homes, certainly suggests danger for the children who are forced into these systems. It's impossible to know what the informant was getting at or if they even intended anything more than a creepy story. But given the history of troubles with both juvenile detention and foster care systems, it's hard not to read this as condemning the system. But La Llorona exists not just as a legend, but also as a subject of art, often politically and socially charged art. In her book, Domino Rene Perez discusses the ways in which La Llorona art is used to discuss issues of Latino identity, assimilation or lack thereof in U.S. culture, and to reflect on colonialism and its legacy. 
Returning to the discussion of the origins of the legend, many artists take it as a given that La Llorona is directly derived from the tale of the goddesses Sihokotl or Quotiliku crying for their missing children as an omen of doom for the Aztecs. In this way, she might be interpreted as killing her children to save them from a worse fate of being enslaved by a foreign power. Alternatively, there is art that portrays these deaths as sacrifices necessary to shed the bad elements of native culture and to fight the bad elements of Spanish culture, with the children returning in a new form as being able to incorporate what is good about both cultures and provide a better future for all people. Art also uses the story as a framework for discussing current issues. For instance, Perez cites the Helena Maria Veramonte's short story, The Caribou Cafe, as being a place where multiple real-life interpretations of La Llorona's collide. There is a central story with multiple points of view. The first point of view is of the son and daughter of a migrant laborer named Sonia and Mackie, who seek safety after they lose their house key and cannot get safely home and away from immigration authorities who are likely to separate them from their father. Another point of view is that of a migrant woman whose son was killed by militias in her home country and who sees Mackie, the young boy, as her child returned and seeks to separate him from both Sonia and from the owner of the cafe. She is a Yorona herself as she blames herself for her son's death and is ready to take another child to replace him. The sister becomes a potential Yorona, as, though she is a child herself, she is the older sibling and is responsible for her brother, but is also the one who lost the key, thus creating a situation where either the immigration authorities or the woman might take her brother away. The cafe owner, in turn, is a rare male Yorona, as he lost his son in the Vietnam War and blames himself, and he sees Mackie as being potentially his redemption, and thus seeks to separate the boy from his sister and from the migrant woman. And of course, Sonia and Mackie's father, though not present, is another potential male Yorona, who may lose his children and will likely blame himself. In the end, the owner, realizing that he cannot take the boy, calls the immigration authorities, which creates a violent end wherein the migrant woman ends up dying, but in doing so allows Sonia and Mackie to escape, thus preventing both Sonia and her father from becoming Yoronas themselves. In this story, the cafe owner, by aligning himself with the existing power structure, remains a strangely traditional Yorona, threatening children out of his own grief. The migrant woman begins as a traditional Yorona, having lost her son and with designs to abduct Mackie, but redeems herself by standing up to the existing power structure and likely reuniting with her son in the afterlife. Sonia and her father are spared the fate of Yorona's by the migrant woman's actions. This is just one example, but it illustrates how systems of power, whether it be South American paramilitary groups, the military politics of the Cold War, or the U.S. dependence on migrant labor combined with a convoluted and often militarized border and immigration policy, create Yorona's, those who have lost children and who may harm others in an effort to assuage their own grief. In a different vein, Perez also cites art, particularly poetry and the visual arts, that illustrate how many Latinos fear losing their cultural identity or values due to the pressure to assimilate into Anglo-American culture. 
This may be metaphorical, with La Llorona serving as a symbol for the youth who failed to learn to speak Spanish or who were lost to violent crime or drugs. But it may also be more direct, with art that portrays women who forego motherhood in favor of career and who, importantly, use contraceptives or obtain abortions as Llorona's mourning children who should have been but never were. Which, again, is a way that the dominance of Catholicism within Latino culture can be clearly observed. In much of this art, La Llorona is framed as frightening, but also accessible, and her wailing can serve to guide people back home. These artistic interpretations of La Llorona are fascinating, but rather than continue going through them, I will note that Perez's book is cited in the show notes, and I highly recommend reading it if this is of interest to you. She demonstrates that, even outside the context of campfire stories or discussions of the story as strict folklore, La Llorona is a potent cultural symbol that contains many different meanings. The comparison to La Malinche is pretty obvious, and it is not surprising that they are often combined into one legend. When La Llorona appears in works produced by non-Latinos, the symbolic value often seems to get lost. The first episode of the television series Supernatural, for example, features a white lady ghost that matches many aspects of La Llorona and just treats her as a creepy spook for the star monster hunters to defeat. While it can be argued that stripping La Llorona of her symbolic importance is disrespectful to the culture that produced her, it is worth keeping in mind both that this borrowing of legendary figures denuded of their native symbolic importance is common in pop culture worldwide. For example, a lot of countries have pop culture that presents King Arthur simply as a really cool king, without referencing the fact that he was a role model for medieval European chivalry and has symbolic importance in the UK. This happens to every culture. Hell, I can't keep track of the number of legendary creatures exchanged and warped between the U.S. and Japan. And there is no reason to expect that La Llorona is going to be different in that regard. But also, in researching this episode, I found that there are many Latino writers and filmmakers who treat La Llorona's symbolism more as an asset to enhancing creepy storytelling than as a serious matter to be considered. While I think that there is value in considering the cultural importance of a story before using it for fiction, it is also important to keep in mind that there is very little that is universally treated as important or sacred. By contrast, I came across a story in a 1906 edition of the Washington, D.C. Star in which a variation of the legend of La Llorona is told, apparently just for entertainment. The story is presented as if it was directly quoted from how the author of the piece seems to think that a native Spanish speaker would speak English. And as someone who has spent most of my life in proximity to people who are native Spanish speakers, I can tell you that none of them speak English in the manner that this author thinks that they do. It is both an interesting version of La Llorona, with her killing anyone who dares to speak to her, and a horribly racist piece of writing that treats Mexicans as a bunch of superstitious rubes incapable of successfully learning languages other than Spanish. One interesting example, though, of a non-Latino using the La Llorona story is David Lynch's film Mulholland Drive, which uses the framework and symbolism of La Llorona, as well as Lynch's own tendency to blend dreams and reality into his films to tell a story about cultural expectations and power differences between Mexican and non-Mexican women in Los Angeles. In Lynch's film, La Llorona is a frightening specter to a white woman who seeks power, but a guide in potential 
guardian to a Mexican woman who needs assistance. And this plays out through two narratives, one in which the white woman genuinely has power over the Mexican woman, and one dream world version where the Mexican woman is able to exert her agency and authority over the white woman. Even Domino Rene Perez, who is generally rather harsh towards non-Latino attempts to tell stories about La Llorona, praises the film. But outside of the intentional use of the story by artists, La Llorona remains a part of a living folklore. In the portions of the United States that contain a large Latino population, La Llorona stories are common, and I can think of multiple bodies of water near where I live where it is said that you might encounter her. I know a number of Mexican-American people who walk the edge of belief and disbelief in La Llorona, and even those who clearly don't believe still tend to regard the legend as important. Even us white folk know about La Llorona, and she has made her way into both television and feature films. La Llorona is a frightening figure, to be sure, and all indications are that she is of Mexican origin, even if influenced through interaction with Spanish legends. I think that it is safe to dismiss those who see her as being purely a transplant from Europe. However, she has become a Pan-American entity, with sightings throughout North and South America and local variations of the legend. Elements of her even show up in stories that I have covered in this podcast, such as the ghost of White Rock Lake in Texas and the White Lady of Cannon Beach. She is often combined with other ghost stories and may become a vanishing hitchhiker or a spirit who foretells the future, rather like her Aztecan ancestor. What I think I find the most interesting about the La Llorona legend is that it contains so much in such a simple story. It is not unique in that regard, but as the community to whom La Llorona belongs doesn't dismiss her as a fairy tale, as so many people do with other folklore, but also is open to consciously reinterpreting her and sorting out what she means, it does create a place where the importance of folklore can be directly and openly seen in a way that is often obscured elsewhere. I'm going to close with a direct quote from a Library of Congress intern named Camille Acosta, who was quoted at the end of a Library of Congress blog post on La Llorona. Ms. Acosta said, quote, No two individuals view La Llorona in the same way. For example, the children I interviewed mostly saw La Llorona as a ghostly apparition, more than willing to instill fear in young ones who misbehave. For the young adults, including myself, there was description of La Llorona not just as a ghost, but as a monster making us feel isolated from normalcy. For my parents, however, La Llorona wavered from being a mother with the world on her shoulders to a key for escaping the harsh realities of life through ostention. Every single informant viewed the Llorona as a unique and personalized character in their own minds. La Llorona is not only a reflection of our innermost fears, but she is the living, breathing proof that we can overcome them as well. Her narrative passed down for centuries is a reminder that our voices are being listened to and acknowledged. La Llorona is understood more and more each and every day, and in a way, so are we. If you have a weird tale, have had a strange experience of your own, or know of a bit of local lore that should get a wider audience, please feel free to contact me at ghostthropology at gmail.com. 
That's G-H-O-S-T-H-R-O-P-O-L-O-G-Y at Gmail. You can find more at kmmamedia.com. Click on the Ghostthropology link and you can find episodes, transcripts, sources, and a link to support us through Patreon. Spooky!